Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're talking about what should Republican voters who don't like President Trump do when it's time to cast your vote. Our guests are two top Republican consultants, Rob Stutzman and Mike Madrid, who are, for better, for lack of a better word, never Trumpers. They oppose President Trump, but they have a different philosophy on how to vote. Madrid is the co-founder of this new never Trumper group called the Lincoln Project, and he thinks Republicans shouldn't vote for any Republican who supports Trump, which is pretty much all of them. Stutzman disagrees. He says, don't vote for Trump, but back other Republicans. We take a look at the past and future of the Republican Party in California and beyond with Rob Stutzman and Mike Madrid. Mike Madrid, Rob Stutzman, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you. We are here. we are sitting here. Mike, you didn't say that you didn't say you were happy to be here. I'm really happy okay, to be here. Right, right, right. You should see his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a theater of the mind. Face for podcasts. <laughs> so we're recording this in the Sacramento offices of Mike Madrid. Thank you for hosting. Sure. And you guys are buds, correct? Yeah. We yeah. worked together yeah. for years, yeah. both longtime Republican consultants, and you're both uh, to put a point on it, ne- never Trumpers, correct? Uh, yeah. So there, how do you, kinda, how do you want to I hate phrase the, that? I don't like that term. Okay. Um, although at this point, after th- three years, it's probably accurate. I, d- I do like what Jonah Goldberg calls Trump skeptical. Um, that's certainly <laughs> Trump averse. Trump averse. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if for practical purposes, never Trump's probably fair. Yeah. I, I don't, right. I don't use that term either. What, what term do you use? What? I just, yeah, I guess I'm Trump, Trump averse. I, I mean, I don't support the president. I, I, I never have. I guess maybe that is what it is. Yeah. But it just seems to be kind of like a disparaging comment, which I don't mind being disparaged, by the way. I'm yeah. very comfortable with that. <laughs> it just, it, it kind of, I think, limits the discussion on why you're opposed to Trump. It's not just I don't like his style, or, or although I don't. Yeah. Um, well, I think it, sometimes it implies you can't agree with anything. Yeah. Right. And I think that's dangerous and doesn't make any sense just yeah. intellectually kind of stupid so that's that's one of my aversions to the label okay but well, we've established we, 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 we establish where you guys are at regardless so um and i want to talk to you guys after reading something that the uh, stutz wrote for the voice of the west the san francisco chronicle yeah. and i will read i will quote you here i will read your your prose aloud i hate when my user yeah. words are used against me. <laughs> especially She's for been doing it to others for so long especially for beta yeah let's we'll see how this works <laughs> So you wrote, uh, you're a Republican, your 401k is thriving in the stock market, conservative judges are being appointed in a historic makeover of the federal bench, the bureaucratic deep state that stifles the economy has been slashed. This is a great age to be Republican, except for you it's not. You're thinking of leaving the party because the GOP president has ushered in an unrecognizably dark era for the party you've called home your entire life. Donald Trump is the antithesis of your hero, Ronald Reagan. He demonstrates no comprehension of the founding central principles of liberty and freedom. He's constitutionally illiterate, revives hateful ideologies that have taken centuries to suppress, is an isolationist protectionist, and admires the world's dictators more than your fellow uh, Americans tortured by our own enemies. Now, you say don't vote for Trump, but... uh, vote for every other Republican on the ballot. Yeah, my, why, why is, what, tell us what that's all well, about. Well, my, my view is, I'm, one of the reasons I'm still a Republican is I believe I'm going to outlast uh, all that darkness that I described that you read so well. And uh, I want to be part of what cha- what's the next for the Republican Party. 
Uh, and this isn't just all about Trump. Trump's somewhat symptomatic, but he's, he's also, I think, causing quite a bit as well. Uh, so I, I, to do that, though, I think we'd still need Republicans in, in place. And so I very much still think it's important for Republicans to be successful uh, at the ballot box this November. Uh, I think there are some who kowtow or bootlick, as I like to say to the president, that if I had an opportunity to vote against him, I probably would. Um, those that would parrot the, the Russian uh, intelligence talking points of misinformation from the dais of the U.S. Congress, I think, I think that's loathsome. And people like that, I'm, I'm fine with taking shots against. But you have so many of these other electeds that are left are really, as I said in that, that piece, they're held hostage. And I don't see any point in shooting the hostages. I want them to return to office and be there from when this passes and be part of what's next. Otherwise, what we get left with when Trump is gone are a bunch of people that are just his, his little mini-me's because every other reasonable Republican or legacy Republican uh, essentially has either quit or been pushed out of office. So, Mike, you're, you're one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project, along with a bunch of other A-list uh, GOP consultants around the country, including George Conway, the uh, husband of the president's top counselor, Kellyanne Conway. You say that voting for the president, for, for people who support the president, is wrong. Why is that? Well, I think, I think um, and Rob and I agree on probably 98% of kind of what's going on here, right. at least a very wide percentage. The, the, I think the riff and what the Lincoln Project has decided to do is, is our goal is to, is to remove Trumpism. We're not sure we can just wait it out. I think it's not just kind of an influenza. We think it's more of like a cancer that's metastasized and it needs to be cut out. And so unless you're actively working against it, it's going to continue to grow. And that, that really, I think, becomes the threshold, the litmus test for us. Now, the, the fewer people that do stand up and I think do make draw that line in the sand, the stronger the cancer becomes. And I think you saw that in full display last week where only Mitt Romney had the courage and capacity to stand up and say, this is illegal. <laughs> this, is, this is a violation of our Constitution. This is a threat to the republic. Even though I think probably to a person or at least a, a wide number of those Republican senators who voted to quit the president knew darn well that he was doing the wrong thing. And that becomes, um, again, a, the, the defining point for us in terms of whether or not the party is salvageable is what are you working with afterwards when you have been tested and you have failed that test? Are these people that can be counted upon the next time, especially when the stakes are not as high? Um, I, I think we don't believe that you're um, a hostage here. We think you're complicit in it at this point because so vote uh, everyone who has stood with the president. Yeah, essentially. So that's, okay, and that's and, a very big number. <laughs> yeah, that's which are pretty much everybody. I mean, the, the not well, it, the, it very is very small. Very few people have pushed back against the president, and that's I think the most troubling part. And I think that's where we have to have an honest reckoning as to whether or not the Republican Party is what I've been involved in my entire adult career life for, you know, 25, 30 years is, is this still that party or is it simply, you know, a tribe headed by a chieftain where, where loyalty is the number one attribute required to be a member? Now, uh, recently you guys, uh, the Lincoln Project, uh, put on an ad that says, or I'm sorry, this is what Jennifer Horn, one of your uh, fellow co-founders, I believe, mm -hmm. she said, uh, Martha McSally, who's a senator in Arizona running to be reelected, is, uh, Martha McSally is known for being a Trump hack, but Arizona is known for strong independent leadership from principled leaders like John McCain and Barry Goldwater. 
Arizonans clearly see who Martha McSally truly is, an unprincipled and unelected Trump hack. So you're saying voters in, in Arizona should vote against the Republican senator. Republican voters should vote against the Republican senator. In Arizona, in Colorado, in Maine, in South Carolina, in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, the list is going to go on. There's a number of targets we're going to be spending significant resources on to unelect people who have been complicit in this. So that's what's, the, what's the effect of that going to be in the well, Republican Party? I mean, the did, effect did, of that is, you know, what, how did Senator Jeff Flake vote last week? Oh, that's right. He's not there anymore. Why? Because he did everything that Mike and his colleagues are, ask, were at, are asking of these people, which is a, apparently to constantly be a Trump critic. So if there's a cancer in the party, and I would agree that there is, you still have to get to treating the symptom. And the, the symptom is still the voters that are the base of all these senators we're talking about. Someone like Susan Collins doesn't, she's no hack for the president. I really don't understand trying to eliminate her. So you're going to end up with Democrats in all of these seats. And what I don't understand either is the, like that type of rhetoric, you know, Martha, you know, McSally is a is a Trump hack. Who's that supposed to be persuading? I think if we, if we want to save the party and turn this around, we have to start persuading the night, you know, that 95 percent of the Republicans who say that they support the president. And that takes a whole lot more nuance and attentionality than just beating the living crap out of these sitting senators who essentially are doing what the, their base voters would want them to do. How do you give them permission to, or the cover, I guess, to vote against the president, to push back on the president? Because that's, I mean, you hear this all the time, that, that people are afraid to do well, that. I start taking it apart by the issues. I mean, some of the issues that I go through in my, in my op-ed, this guy's not a conservative, right? I mean, he's a protectionist, isolationist. The debt is absolutely exploding. He's a complete statist. He doesn't talk about personal liberty. He has no comprehension, really, of the Constitution and freedom. And, and he's destroying our alliances in Europe that have kept us safe since the end of World War II. I, I think there's a lot of room there to go out and make sure we're talking to people about that. And you, t- you think about his evangelical base. I mean, to consistently stay on those voters, not to make them feel like idiots were voting for him three years ago or that they had, some, you know, that was a terrible thing that they did. But to truly try to drive at their conscience about what they really believe, especially after a week like this, when he made such a fool of himself at the prayer breakfast, we can, we can go into that. Basically, it was antithetical to the gospel. There's just all these things that could be done to try to move voters. And once those voters start moving and loosening up a little bit, we're going to see U.S. senators and members of the House start to be able to pivot as well. Now, you're, you're a religious person. Uh, personally, you, you, uh, you, you live, you live a, a religious life. Uh, try to we all try. Well, we all we all, we all we, maybe maybe not maybe not monastic but <laughs> as best as we we're all sinners and we'll leave it at that but i mean why do evangelicals continue to stay with them you can talk about that is it the judges really i mean how can he continue to do these things and, and evangelical voters still stay with it i think it's become a lot about that so much of this is about what he's not right and in unfortunately in america um, evangelicalism, which you know that word's been ruined, right? Because we use it in political context. Yes. It, it, it's it's all we're just driven by fear. I mean, it's it's classic fear of politics, and you know the thing about polling and evangelical supporting Trump. I mean, that's all like self-identified. I think there's a lot of Christians or born again Christians who no longer want to be called evangelical uh, because of the connotation that don't support the, the president. That are you know people of faith, but I you know it's it's this. It's this block movement of operating out of fear. They do put a lot of stock in the judges. 
but they're so bought in. They're so far down the path. They don't know where the line is, mm. you know, that he may cross. I, I, I'll ask friends that are in this camp. Like, well, what, where's the line, you know, for you? Well, the line would be as if he, you know, chose Russia over the Americans. You know, you go back and point out, well, he <laughs> did that actually, did that. standing yeah, right yeah, next yeah, to yeah. Putin. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. so it, it's, it has, it has it, it's just this unstoppable force that's like barreling down the highway. And Is it's there anything pathetic. that could turn that around? Or? I think, well, so I think... <laughs> I think more evangelical leaders need to be encouraged to push back, uh, especially over the, the you know some of the, I think some of the crazy things people like you know Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. keep saying to try to lead this movement um, and start challenging it. It's almost a side skirmish that has to happen inside the American evangelical church, if you will. But it's like put some resources into that because if you don't win that type of ground back, Trump will be gone. And then we'll be moving on to trying to win those same hearts and minds over whoever comes next, whether it's, you know, Matt Gates or Don Jr. or whoever, whatever, whatever, um, you know, Trump, Trump mini me is going to try to take up the mantle when he's gone. Well, Mike, what is the Republican Party look like post-Trump, whether it be in November or whether it be four years down the road? What is is there a um, is, is this purely based on Donald Trump Sr.? Or is this part of a new way? Look, that's a great question. I think that what we have learned is that it is not what people like I and other members of the Lincoln Project and maybe even Rob you know, have been thinking it was tw- for the past 30, 25 years. Yeah. We've learned a lot about our colleagues, a lot about our friends, a lot about some of our, our own families, you know, about, about this Trump era and where people are at and what really defines political identity. Look, I believe the Republican Party has devolved into an organization very similar to the National Front in France. It is the party of white identity politics. And I stand on that very firmly. I have been studying ethnic and racial politics for the bulk of my career. There is every indication that that is what is driving this, especially in the evangelical community. There is a reason why black evangelicals vote overwhelmingly for the Democrats. There's a reason why Latino evangelicals vote very strongly for the Democrats. And there's a reason why white evangelicals vote overwhelmingly for the Republican Party. You don't see that in Catholicism. You don't see that in other religions. There is an absolute identity formation within the evangelical community that Rob, I think, very astutely points out needs to be addressed. It needs to be examined. And I don't know that that can be reconciled because the moment, if, if you have not moved past the point of understanding the threat that Donald Trump um, uh, exists as, forget about the Republican Party, forget about the Republican movement, to our basic republic, to our country at this point, and to our institutions, you're not coming back. You're just not. I don't buy this so you notion. You, that, you think that the, the party is irrevocable? The, the Republican I think, party. I think are, that there are. are I think. Are I, I, look, I believe. Are, I believe. I, I believe it's a good. You know, Catholic. I believe that nobody is beyond redemption or salvation. <laughs> but I believe that you've got to genuinely come from a place where you're willing to work for that and, yeah. and actually admit and work towards what is clearly, evidently on its face, bad. And we can't even get that out of it. Mm. So we're not trying to persuade Republicans anymore. And I've been very clear about this. My goal is not trying to save the Republican Party anymore. It is to fumigate the Republican Party. There are people that will never come back. And frankly, there are a lot of people that I don't ever want to work in coalition with again because of this time and era. I am willing to work with those that do have the sense of purpose 
the sense of shame to recognize that what is going on is bad for this country, it's bad for us as a people, then it's bad for us as conservatives and Republicans. And that's the priority that I put them in. And that is why the Lincoln Project takes on the tactics that it does. We are not in the persuasion business. We are in the shaming business. And the tactic has worked. It worked in the midterms. When you saw Republican, higher educated, higher income earners, people that are more informed, more aware, left the Republican in the Republican Party in the midterms in record numbers. That was the only way that the Democrats could have picked up those seven congressional seats in California and why we suffered losses. We as a party suffered losses in mainly suburban communities. So if we continue that tactic, Steve Bannon himself has said, if we get three to 4% of Republicans to just sit it out, not even vote for the Democrat, the electoral landscape changes immeasurably. But the, the tactic of, of going of shaming, isn't that a Trump tactic? Shouldn't it be a different type of way, sort of a more of a, an aspirational message to these folks who were Republicans who, you know, as, as Stutz alluded to in the- in I think the if, if this were 1984, I would agree with you. Yeah. I think the fact that Donald Trump is there in office using that tactic to suggest that we should not be fighting fire with fire would right. be malpractice as a political professional. We're going to meet the fight and engage the battle where it is at. And that is uncomfortable, but there, it's demonstrably it has worked. It is the only tactic that has worked. The idea that somehow we can take a higher road while this guy goes immediately to the gutter, people are following him. And like I said, I'm not trying to win a majority of Republicans. I really don't care at this point. I'm trying to get that 17 to 20 percent of Republicans who really know that this is really, really bad stuff but are more afraid of the Democrats and the alternative to suggest that your fear of a large state, your fear of big government spending, your fear of a, of a corrupt president is already manifested itself. It's not going to be by the Democrat. It's the Republican doing all of that. We'll be back for more of our conversation with Rob Stutzman and Mike Madrid after this break. Stutz, do you think at this point, as we sit here on middle of February 2020, does the president win re-election? Uh, I still am inclined to think he doesn't. But this, I mean, look, I mean, huge variables, obviously. Yes, they get to I mean, a thousand who, variables. Who are the Democrats gonna, going to nominate? Well, who, who, is, who would be his toughest opponent and who would be his easiest opponent? Uh, I think his toughest opponent would be Mike Bloomberg. And and why think, is that? Uh, well, because I, I think Bloomberg can attract centrist voters. I think the Republican coalition that Mike was talking about that voted for Democrat House members in the suburbs would probably mostly get comfortable with Bloomberg. He probably just shouldn't talk about banning sodas. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Biden could have fit that bill, but I'm, you know, as we sit here on the eve of New Hampshire, yes. uh, this is going to air after that. Yeah. I understand it'll be posted after that. You know, it doesn't look like um, Joe's, you know, finishing strong. I, I think that or starting strong. Or starting strong. Well, he does start strong yeah. in a certain in a certain way. Uh, look, I think the most uh, vulnerable the Dems are obviously is with with Sanders. Uh, I think they would have been less so with with Warren, who doesn't appear she's going to win that that lane. But I think Sanders is a dangerous candidate for them. If not, you know, in some ways, their own Donald Trump. Um, he doesn't he doesn't like obviously lie, but there's so much you know, horse bleep involved with what he's peddling um, and a lot of weird conspiracy stuff. And I, 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 in some ways, if it's Sanders and Trump, I kind of feel like we're, we're at halftime on this just strange, amazing 
journey through American politics that we're in the midst of. Wow. I hope it's right. halftime. I hope it's not just the first quarter because, I mean, I think. Well, I, I hope it's the fourth quarter. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think that, I mean, I agree 100% with what Rob just said. I think that a dem- it's too early to know yeah. what the dynamics are going to be. But I do, I do believe and have been saying this for some time. I think that the Bernie Sanders threat in many ways is as dangerous as the Trump threat, at least to democracy in the way that we have known it. And, and why is that? Well, because it's a sign of, of of rising populism, which is not specific to the Republican Party. Donald Trump is this kind of spectacular, vulgar, you know, exhausting figure uh, on the right, and we just think it's a Republican problem. It's really not. It's a, it's a broader social phenomenon. Mm-hmm, yeah. And Bernie Sanders is tapping into that same. It's not just anti-establishment. He's running against his own party and talking about you know tearing the institutions down in order to meet the goals of this revolution. And what happens in that environment is those subscribers, those adherents to this philosophy buy more into the personality than to the actual ideology. And so partisanship and parties, which have been great um, roadmaps for voters for centuries, at least a couple centuries here, to, to give people an understanding of what their philosophy of governance is, is thrown out the window mm. and ideology becomes malleable. So Trump can get up and say, well, now Republicans like the Russians. Now we're for tariffs. You're, you're, you're now we're opposed to free trade. A, a candidate based on their image, their personality, their... You're choosing a tribal you know, chieftain to look out for your own tribe. And that's the danger. And Bernie Sanders is, is characteristic of the same, same attributes. Yeah, I mean, if Sanders is elected president, you'll be sitting here in three years with two Democrat consultants, one talking about <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the Truman Project, yeah, right. which is trying to purify the Democrat Party. I mean, I mean the script could completely flip if, if Sanders becomes <laughs> yeah. president. Uh, yeah. So yeah. should one of the great uh, debates in the Democratic Party right now is should uh, the party spend more time trying to bring back the Obama Trump voter, or should they spend that, say, you know, forget those guys, and let's spend more time trying to expand the party uh, base, the uh, Obama coalition, uh, women, young people, people of color, et cetera, et cetera. And I know there's no better people to ask than two Republican consultants about this, but, <laughs> right. but no wonder, I'm, but I'm curious, well, do you think those people are, uh, the, 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 those voters are lost or are they worth, worth trying to bring back? No, no, I think you can I think you can bring them back. They're also going to be a diminishing part of the electorate, which goes to the Democrat's point. For about, democratic for yeah, demographic reasons. For demographic uh, reasons. Yeah. Just that the electorate is very different. Well, it's different in a lot of states that, you know, are going to go blue. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen youth. We've seen young minority voters register here and vote, you know, in the last election in California and, and you know, by hundreds of thousands of new voters. But look, the winning coal, if I'm the Democrats, the winning coalition is how you won the House. And the squad might be who you see on cable TV every night. But for the squad, there's actually about twice as many incredibly impressive moderate Democrats, many of them women, who won in these suburban districts that absolutely could, I think, you know, if that was the party, the message in the face of the party, they would have... Uh, be in danger of building a large Clinton type uh, type majority. I mean, this is what you know. Speaking of Clinton, I mean, this is this is what the fight in Cajun Carville's been talking about, right? You know, Michael Bennett's a yeah, supporter. Get, get, <laughs> get broader. It's that whole DLC model. And you know, interesting. You look a year ago, the Dem- Democrats won two uh, governorships in the Deep South. One was a reelect in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and the other was was in was in Kentucky. And they're you know they're all blue dogs, right? They're they're pro life. They're okay with their guns. They're really pretty moderate and if the Democrats could ever figure that out again, mm-hmm. 
especially in the South, which surely went red, but it's going to continue now to diversify, mostly because a lot of Californians are moving there. Um, they've got real opportunity um, to really become, a, I think, a majority party for the next decade. This is what the republic. This is the everything the Republicans are just giving away. There's no there's no majority for the next decade in becoming a white party in America. Right. Right. And let's talk about speaking of let's talk about your home party here, the California Republican Party. Um, what should they be doing in this in this state where two thirds of the vote? Yeah, no, we could say we should start restart the clock on this yeah. podcast right now. What um, two thirds of the voters here don't like the president or disagree? Two thirds are going to vote against him. Yeah, yeah. What should they be doing now? Because I've had uh, Jessica Patterson on. She you know stands by the president, but at the same time, you know, she's trying to inch away from him a little bit. Uh, say so we're more about that. What should they be doing? To, what's the path I'll back to relevancy? <laughs> I, look, and I, 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 I will. The full disclaimer on this is: I think the solution to this is very easy um, from an intellectual standpoint. It's extraordinarily complicated from a practical political standpoint. I right. think that we have to do what successful Republican governors in Maryland and Vermont and Massachusetts have done. Very deep blue states. What they have done is they have vocally and publicly distanced themselves from Donald Trump and Trumpism, and they've demonstrated that conservative governance works and Trumpism is abhorrent. And this is some of the most popular governors in the country. The three, I think, Larry Hogan, uh, the, the most popular governors in America are Republican yeah. governors in blue states. So it can be done. Now, California is different. It's unique, much more diverse electorate, which makes it even more challenging. But the roadmap is there. It's not complicated to figure out. Now, the Republican Party, as it's shrinking and it, it, it you know, it's on a downward trajectory and has been for 20 years, is increasingly represented in areas that have a couple key characteristics. They're overwhelmingly white. The Republican Party is 80% white by registration in a state that is 36% white. They have much lower medium incomes than the average Californian. They're in districts where Trump won, and only 16% of the congressional districts where Republicans represent uh, the House, only 16% of the population have college degrees. So these communities don't look like the rest of California by educational, racial, or income or ethnic hmm. uh, standards. So, but but we are only talking to those constituencies. So we will say as a party, and we have since I was the political director twenty five some odd years ago, that we want to reach out to these communities and have a different issue set, and let's show up and you know demonstrate that we care to you know show up and wherever. The truth of the matter is the party has not done that in 25 years in any meaningful way. It has no plans and no designs to. It is doubling down on its shrinking constituency because as it shrinks, it becomes more monolithic. Mm. You lose those moderate voices. You lose the ability for people to think outside of that bubble. And so it becomes an even smaller, more intense echo chamber. And so, no, the party is not going to come back in California anytime soon. Mm. Wow. And, uh, yeah. I mean, well, cosine. <laughs> More optimistic, okay. but Rob's the optimist right, in the room. <laughs> that was, um, is there? There's a. There are a couple people who could uh, come out of this. Whatever happens in the next few years, Kevin Falconer. Uh, do are you both yeah. Falconer fans? Uh, he was been on the podcast. He seems like, like someone who could yeah, like you know, get that deal. that that middle road. He's the, the the or or could he could he win statewide? Look, if you go by the numbers. Uh, where Republicans are the third category of registration at about 23,000. They actually, they've 
it actually grew for the first time in what a little it over did. a decade. Yes, but I, some of the, some of that's because everyone's going to their tribes, right? This right. thing is getting really tribal here. They're choosing the, their gangs uh, uh, before the, if this all goes down in November. So in reality, no, the party's still declining. So by the numbers, it's 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 really kind of difficult to imagine a Republican winning absent extenuating circumstances and yeah you know been through a few things in california politics seen a recall and electing you were at the head of the tip of the spear of the recall for governor schwarzenegger i think extenuating circumstances you know are are possible when if there's a downturn in the economy that the effect on the budget here we know is devastating to incumbent governors uh this homelessness issue people are going to get to the point where they're going to hold people to account Mm -hmm. and they're going to they may do so with a lot of political violence so, you know, Faulkner obviously has identified homelessness yes. as an issue. Trying to get so, a ballot measure you know, on I, next year. I think of anything what we've learned, especially in the era of Trump, is to never say never. Um, but I do think it's difficult. And with it, it, I, the prospect of a rising centrist or center-right independent, uh, to me, might be seem more plausible maybe than a Republican. But if, the only person out there I can identify, I think, that maybe this could come around for with an opportunity would would be Faulkner. I 100% right. agree. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think everything Rob said, plus one other area, the homelessness issue um, exemplifies not just an emergent issue, which I think is is a an issue that both parties really have a difficult time getting their arms around what it means, what's causing it, and what are the solutions to it. But Kevin Faulkner is actually a Republican who has worked on urban policy problems in a major city. That's an extremely rare commodity. I think there's one member of the Assembly and the Senate that has actually served on the city council in one of our 10 biggest cities in California. Mm -hmm. So they're not very, very few Republicans have actually gotten their hands dirty in the governance of actually making government work. A lot of them just kind of take the sidelines and it's easier to just kind of be sort of the party of no. He's had to uh, get in there. And he's and, had success in San Diego. Quite, yes. quite he's successful. Had, he's and he's, successful and he's got a record. And so for a Republican to talk about successful governance, I think in its own way is very unique. So really tall uh, obstacles before him. But I think Kevin Falcon, I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I mean, I like the way he approaches mm-hmm. governance. Mm-hmm. He's not... Um, he doesn't hate government. He understands that there's a role and he's got to make it work. And he does it and, from a conservative perspective. And speaks Spanish. And speaks Spanish. And that's kind of, and has tackled some successfully some very significant problems. Before we wrap up, Mike, tell us a little bit about Lincoln's plans, uh, specifically in California and sort of broadly general. Give us a quick uh, well, 35,000 foot, foot overview here. The, uh, the first and primary objective is to make sure that Donald Trump is not reelected. The second, and it's a pretty close second, is to- How, how much money are you going to have to do this? Well, we've got- a. There's, there's, there's a number of ways to look at this. The first is it will be multi-seven figures, very significant resources. I mean, we know, we're none of us are taking this lightly. Mm-hmm. These are people at the very top of their game in the consulting profession. There's a lot of Republican money, a lot of Republican money that is as concerned as we are and wanted to put together a team that could tackle this issue. Moreover, the amount of money we've raised online uh, has been kind of breathtaking. Well, much? Can you- uh, well, it's, it's all going to be available in the reports, but we've raised over a million dollars within the first week. I think, and the average donation was $77. Most of these are recurring contributions. So, and that's just, that was after the initial launch. I mean, we still have months to build into this thing. So there is a, there's an appetite for this undeniably. And the second place where we will be going is into those Senate seats that I mentioned earlier, McSally in, in Arizona, Gardner in Colorado, Collins in Maine, 
um, Tillis in North Carolina. Lindsey Graham is in single digits. He's a lot weaker than people think he is. We're going after Lindsey. If no other reason, then just send Lindsey a message and send the rest of the Republican base a message. These are these these are a fearless group of warriors. There's by far the strongest group of people who just are are ready to make a change and ready to put our careers, our reputations on the line to make an impact for our country. And that's kind of nice to be able to say at this point in my career. The third, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, is we are going to look at places like California where we can make a difference in helping the Republican Party um, in its own demise. If it's not going to choose to do the right thing, we will help expedite that process so that that either that rebirth can happen or, and again, this is an important distinction, I'm a conservative before I'm a Republican. Republicanism has been a vehicle for my conservative beliefs. Once the Republican Party vacates that field, and it largely has, I'm okay with disbanding the Republican Party. So as long as the ends of my conservative public policy beliefs can find a better venue to accomplish those aims. Mm. If the party wants to reform itself and figure that out, I'm happy to help. But in the meantime, it is a threat to everything that I have worked for. And that's what we will be addressing in places like California, where the outcomes are largely predetermined, but the parties still remain a very intense base of support for, for nationalism. And so that's how you would be spending your 2020. I'll be spending my 2020 trying to help Republicans get elected here in the in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, I plan on probably working on some independent expenditure, as we say in the business. To, yes, the air quotes to, were up for that. To try yes, to yes. keep uh, some Republicans in the in the state house, particularly the state senate, mm-hmm. and that'll be my focus. So yeah, I'm not welcomed by the federal committees, and uh, it's, I know I don't really don't. You know, I, I hope all the Republicans that are in Congress return, but you know, people like Devin Nunes, I just think are were really offensive. I just don't think he could. He can be. He can be beat. Um, so see- I'll be. I'll be sitting. Yeah, I'll be sitting out a lot of the, the 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 federal side. But you know, look, if there was an opportunity to, you know, be involved in efforts to help reelect someone like Cory Gardner in Colorado um, or Collins in Maine, I would. I would gladly do that. And I think there has to be some nuance to understanding a McSally who, in the last couple of weeks, has wholly adopted these Trump type tactics. Um, which is really appalling, as opposed to, you know, Cory Gardner, who could come out and say something against Trump and his base will abandon him and he won't get reelected. So you're, you're, some of these people, they're kind of they're damned either, almost either yeah. way that what we're asking them to, to do, which would be the Jeff Flake version. I'm just walking right. away from it. Right? I wonder one one last thing we, we sort of alluded to, to Mitt Romney. Um, you know, he's, he's getting a lot of love from both the left. Uh, well, I shouldn't say both of us. It's mostly from the left for his uh, his vote uh, on impeachment or removal, I should say. Um, but I mean, he also, you know, isn't up for reelection. He's this is probably, you know, he's in a safe seat. The president's he's more popular than the president in Utah. Was how much of that was courage, and how much can you use them his as a role model? Talk with, talk well, I, on I think, uh, you know, Romney and I, I wrote a piece that I, I think you guys posted online. I wrote it through Cal Matters, kind of defending Mitt. I worked for Mitt in 08, so I was mm-hmm. a proud alum. If you listen to Mitt explain it, and he did an interview with uh, Mark Leibovich. Played I on, heard that, yeah. Play, yeah I played yeah, on the yeah, Daily New York yeah. Times podcast. Um, it, this clearly, I think, was a, an issue of, of deep conviction for him. And sure, he's not up for, for re-election, but what he's going through... Um, and what Nobody would knew, want that on who you. Who the hell would want yeah. to go through that? And it didn't make any difference it, in terms of the vote to convict, right? 
But hopefully the difference it made is that it seared some consciences and will we'll rally some people to saying there are some lines here uh, that shouldn't be crossed. So, look, politicians are politicians. Mitt's made calculating decisions in the past like any politician has. He He's the, the much easier path would have been not to have done this. Because right. it probably is a very defensible position, I think, of saying, yeah, he did the thing, but <clears throat> we don't think it merits removal or we're too close to an election. Um, I, I think that's probably a very reasonable conclusion to come to. But no, he decided <laughs> yeah. to vote to re- remove him. So see, I it think it was terribly a, heroic. It could be a role model m- moment. I would hope so. Well, let me, and I'll be real quick because I know we're wrapping up. But see, this I think this is uh, the perfect illustration of of what we are looking for with this effort with the lincoln project when i look at cory gardner rob is right he is damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't he there is no win but what i've always advised my clients is when there is no win with your base or with the opposition do the right thing Mm. and that's what mitt romney did and what you find is that's ultimately why you get into this in the first place. And if you didn't, you shouldn't be there. Mm. And that's where we're going to help a lot of these guys see the see the exit door in, in the elections coming up. Guys, thanks so much. Mike Madrid. Thanks, Mike for having us. thanks, thanks so much. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Rob Stutzman and Mike Madrid for being on the podcast today. And I'd like to thank Madrid for uh, hosting us at his office in Sacramento. I'd like to thank Erica Carlos for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you hate Trump or you love him, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.